I'm Ken Canera, and you're listening to Beyond Consulting. Today, we welcome Ariz Dustor to the studio. Ariz is a partner at NB Group Investors, and he's also a former McKinsey consultant. But before we say hello to Ariz, I just want to remind everyone that we are sponsored by ECA Partners, a specialized project staffing and executive search firm. Ariz, thanks so much for joining. Hey, Ken. Thanks for having me on. You bet. So, Ariz, before we were, you know, hit record, we were talking a little bit about kind of like your career history and kind of like where you started. Maybe just uh, want to kind of do the usual introduction to l- let everyone know kind of who you are and how you got to where you're at today. Yeah, sure. I'll try to keep it somewhat brief. I was born and raised in the Midwest. Spent most of my time before college in West Michigan and Grand Rapids. And then I did my undergrad at University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, and I was a liberal arts major. I double majored in political science and history. And I think throughout college thought I would probably pursue a career in some fashion in public policy or politics, but had always had an interest in business and ended up going in that direction when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do after college. And so I started my career in consulting at McKinsey and Company in their Chicago office way back in 2006. And I was there for about two years, had a great experience, but I think had a sense that that wasn't something that I wanted to pursue as sort of a long-term career and get into the reasons for that if, if you'd like, but had always had an interest in investing and it was a very common kind of exit opportunity from McKinsey to go into private equity. And so I joined a middle market private equity firm in Boston, right really the summer before the financial crisis, really, uh, you know, Lehman Brothers collapsed, I think it was in September of 2008. And I joined a couple months before that. So really interesting, perhaps terrible timing, but interesting timing to be joining a private equity firm. And I did that for about a year and change. I don't know that the, you know, it's not a great time to be joining the industry. And I'm not sure that necessarily the place I was at was the, the best fit for me. And so I ended up moving out from Boston to the West Coast and joining Yahoo doing corporate development. So M&A and investments in the consumer internet space, which was an area, technology and internet in particular was an area I was interested in. And I did that for about two years and then ended up actually moving to Asia for two years where I initially started working on starting a company over there in the e-commerce space and then was working on launching other companies and doing some investing. And then after two years there, I came back to the US and along with a set of partners, we started a software company, SaaS company focused on the financial market data space. And so I was doing that for almost five years and that company ended up getting acquired by Strategic in uh, 2017. And that sort of point in my career, I wanted to get back to investing with a focus on kind of later stage, you know, control transactions. And I had a close friend of mine who I'd met at University of Michigan. We were actually in the same dorm freshman year. And we talked about working together before. We have relatively similar career paths. And so we decided to start our own firm doing, you know, focus on private equity investments in, uh, in a handful of spaces that, that we know well. And we have, you know, we think interesting investment theses in. And so we've been doing that for about five years, closed three transactions now and kind of a very active pipeline trying to build out a, a select portfolio of kind of, you know, high quality growing, growing assets. 
So not many folks have gone from consulting, done investing, then kind of went the entrepreneur route and then back to investing. Usually they stick with the entrepreneur route if, that, if that's where they're going to go. I guess what kind of drew you back to investing? Yeah, I think the honest answer is probably a couple things. So I think one is I don't know that I'm a great company builder at that early stage. So I'm not sure that it's I think career sort of matching. What are you interested in? I think along with what are you good at? And I'm not sure that I enjoy either enjoyed that early sort of stage company building process as much as I thought I would. And I'm not sure I was as good at it as I wanted to be. And so I felt like the sort of day to day type of work you do as an investor was a much better fit for me. I also think if I'm being honest, I'd gone a long time without without making a lot of money. <laughs> and I wanted to do something where I had an opportunity to, you know, and particularly where it was tied to performance and everything. And I you know, had an opportunity that like economically that was, you know, exciting for me. But but it was definitely more of the former. Yeah. Just trying to think about what did I enjoy and what was I good at. And I think what we've been able to do is also match that with sort of an entrepreneurial way of doing private equity. So versus trying to join an established firm and sort of work your way up, we wanted to do something on our own. And that's what we did. We started our own firm. That's interesting. And okay, so MB Group, that's your firm. Tell us about kind of your focus, what you invest in, all the interesting bits. Yeah, we're looking to be the first institutional money or capital into founder or family-owned businesses mm -hmm. in three main sectors. So one is multi-unit with a, a focus on, really a focus on consumer services. Okay. The second sector is healthcare and wellness. And so that spans kind of hardcore healthcare services where you have reimbursement issues, you have major regulatory issues that you need to work through. And then also what we'd call sort of wellness, which might be services that are more cash pay, could be more cosmetic, things like that. And then the third area is technology, which is really a focus on technology or IT services as well as software. Mm -hmm. And from a size perspective, we're really focused on the lower middle market, which for us typically means businesses with anywhere from 10 to $100 million of revenue and three to $20 million of EBITDA or sort of cash flow. Mm -hmm. And we tend to focus probably a little more on the cash flow metric than uh, necessarily on revenue. And I'd say overall, we tend to be growth oriented investors. So we don't do turnarounds. We're really looking for businesses that have exhibited pretty strong historic growth, in some cases quite rapid. And we're looking to either sort of continue that or inflect it upwards. And we'll be both a control kind of majority investor, as well as do significant minority investments. We like to be fairly, hand, I'd say on the spectrum of being hands off versus hands on. We don't run the companies that we invest in. We're not operators, but we have a small portfolio. We intentionally keep it small so that we can, I, I think, be more involved and, and helpful to the companies that we invest in. So we're doing a lot of things at those companies to try to help them. So talk to us a little bit more about that, because I think that's a widely kind of misunderstood decision that investors can make, right? So I've seen everything from where we call portfolio companies that they own partners, like literally they call them their partners, to, hey, you're going to do this <laughs> and you're, and you're going to like it, right? I guess curious to hear a little bit more about kind of like your thoughts on the way you interact with your portfolio companies. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge topic. I think from the outside, if you're not in the private equity industry, so for example, if you're a business owner and you've got a you know a strong company, you're probably getting 
we talk to business owners that are getting calls, emails, LinkedIn requests, you know, one, two, three times a week mm-hmm. from investors. And I think from the outside, they all generally look the same. <laughs> the websites look the same. It's the same kind of bromides about value creation. Everyone's got the same same backgrounds, investment banking, consulting. They went to the same 10 schools, that sort of thing. So I think it's very hard from the outside in to sort of parse through what are the differences between these firms. But the reality is each firm has a very different potentially approach to how they work with a company. And that approach may be what you're looking for or not. It may be what your business needs or not. And so I think there's a real there's a real spectrum. And some investors, they have the approach that what we're going to spend all our time on is sort of selecting the right company and your right company, right management team. And that's that's where we're sort of creating value. And then we're going to attend a quarterly board meeting and be relatively hands-off. And they're letting that, you know, because we chose the right industry, we chose the right company in that industry, a strong management team, those sorts of things, that's where the value is gonna get created. I think we're probably a little more on the other end where, I mean, I think fundamentally that security selection is probably the most important part of what we do or really any investor does. But I think we strongly believe that they're very tangible things we can do at the companies that we invest in. And we're usually identifying a bunch of those before we even close a transaction that we think can, for lack of a, to use an overused term, can add value to that business. And I think we're looking for business owners that hopefully want or sort of seeking that kind of help. And I think when you, you have a business owner that's open to that help and you can match that with an investor that knows, you know, I think knows how to do it, that can really create a, a strong situation. Having said that, we do not run companies day to day. So we're not looking to sort of get involved in day to day decisions. And I think we have to, of course, be mindful of ultimately you have a CEO who's running that business and he or she's making decisions. And there may be decisions they're making that we don't necessarily agree with, but you have to give them the wrong way to, to make decisions as they see fit. And usually where we're getting more involved is on kind of strategic or higher level areas for the business. So how did you develop that muscle going from, you know, consulting where maybe you, you have a team of insecure overachievers where you say, go do that, you know, jump and they all say how high to starting your own software business and, and running it? Like, was it a challenge for you to kind of like shift into that? Like, hey, here's a lot of rope and here's some tools. Like, let me kind of step back. How was that transition? I think it's always hard to go from being an operator to an investor because there's usually a there's a natural tendency to want to involve yourself perhaps in decisions. Mm-hmm. For me, honestly, I think it's it was uh, in some ways like liberating because I may not be the best person to execute a sales strategy or execute a marketing plan or, or run a finance department. But I think I'm much better as as an advisor or getting involved in pieces of those functions necessarily than trying to own one. And so I think actually being able to step away from day to day for me, I mean, it was something I wanted to do. I did not want to be running a, a function at an operating company. It was pretty easy for me to do. I think probably where investors maybe have a harder time of that is, and, and you see this more in earlier stage investing. So in the venture capital space, it's very common for an ex-operator to move into an investing role. I'd say in the private equity world, that's much less common. You know, typically as a CEO, if you're someone who's a veteran CEO and they move to a private equity firm, they're still, like their core focus is on operations. Typically it's less on the investing side. And so I think it's that's probably an easier transition versus say in the venture world where you have someone that started 
a startup and now they're an investor at a VC firm and they have to really, you know, I think fully make that transition. Okay, that's helpful. And then if you think about kind of like your playbook, is it, you know, and why maybe like a, you know, an owner operator would get excited about working with you? What are some of the things that you guys are doing usually post acquisition? Yeah, it really varies by company. So it's hard to we, we don't have a template where we, we don't have a, a list of here, here's a checklist for every investment. And we, we don't go through that. It's, it's really highly dependent on the company. And there's companies that need less help than others. So, you know, I mean, sort of an ideal situation is a company that's firing on all cylinders and you've got a great management team and there may be select areas where they want or need help. And that, but for the most part, they're sort of running with the business and you got to run kind of run alongside them. And that that's great. And then you may have other management teams that really they want help. They want kind of these strategic resources and they welcome it. So it's situational. But I think areas where we spend a lot of time are, you know, typically in every investment, we will do a long range sort of strategic planning exercise. Mm -hmm. So we think about, okay, where's the business today? Where do we want it to be three, four years from now in terms of revenue, in terms of profitability? Are there other aspects of the business that we want to look different a couple of years from now, maybe to maximize value? as we think about eventually exiting and then working back from that to, okay, between now and there, what are the things that need to get done? What are the timelines? What are the resources we need to do that? So I think that's one element of it. I think a second that's related is we're oftentimes, I would say more often than not, the business needs additional resources in terms of people. So there may be positions that are lacking on the team today. Very common example is, is in the finance function. A business may not even have an internal finance function. They may not have a CFO. And so helping them recruit and put someone in place in that position. And then thinking about in the rest of the organization, I mean, every board meeting we're asking, do we have the right resources? Do we need to hire more people? Do we have the right person in this sort of the seat? I think that's another piece. And there's a bunch of blocking and tackling stuff we're doing typically. So we're oftentimes companies don't have a regular reporting cadence. Mm -hmm. So they may not have a full, say, monthly reporting package. And so we're helping put that in place and develop metrics that everyone in the business is looking at. Usually companies don't have a board in place. So we'll always put in place a board. We'll usually try to bring in an outside board member who has super relevant experience from, from maybe an adjacent space or in a specific function that they can bring bring to bear. So I think those are some of the examples. And I could go through a bunch more if we you know, were talking about a specific company, for example. But Okay, cool. And obviously with MB, you're drawing on experiences from you know, various aspects of your career. You've done everything from kind of corporate development in a more traditional sense. You've done consulting. You worked with a private equity firm previously. Could you maybe just walk through maybe like some of the things learned from each of those different careers and maybe just start with like Yahoo? Because I, you know, I think one career that a lot of former consultants consider is that like that first corporate development role, but maybe they're a little bit hesitant. Maybe just kind of walk through each one. I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of core skill sets that have maybe come from different places. I think one is kind of industry and strategic analysis. So being able to look at a company or an industry and identify what are the key trends, what does the competitive landscape look like, how's the industry evolving, or you know, if you have a specific business and they have a certain goal, for example, they're trying to double their size in four years and 
trying to create a very detailed bottoms up plan for how you do that. Those are all skills that I think I got to, to some extent, at least from consulting, that kind of structured thinking and then putting analysis behind it. And I think that's been very helpful. I mean, if you think about executing a private equity investment successfully, there, there's a lot of different things that go into that. But I think a big thing that we always think about on the front end of an investment, so before we've even invested, is trying to think through what are the industry trends that we're investing behind and what are the dynamics in that industry and with that specific company. And so I think that skill set's been super helpful with that. I think there's another skill set, which is really around finance. And I think people that start their careers in investment banking, for example, I think you're sort of you're really getting this and you don't get it as a consultant. And that's one yeah. of the, I think it's a gap for most consultants do not get this. It's a gap is sort of, I think some of those harder finance skills. So financial modeling or LBO modeling specifically building comp sets. So looking at comparable companies, a lot of the stuff you're, I mean, frankly, you're sort of doing in Excel and, and it's much, there's a lot of detail. I'd say financial analysis and work, that goes into an investment and particularly into a later stage private equity deal. And so I think certainly got some of those skills at the private equity firm I was at. And I think a lot of that is those aren't necessarily transferable skills, right? So it's a very specific, you know, executing leverage buyout. It's a very specialized skill set. It doesn't necessarily transfer to other, there's no other real space. I mean, there's probably some hedge fund activity where you need to be able to build a leverage buyout model or you need to be able to, model out a detailed debt schedule. I mean, there's some other areas where I think it would be useful, but it's highly specialized and there's the process oriented item. So there's a whole process around a private equity deal, around buying a company, the legal aspect to it, the financial diligence, insurance diligence, HR diligence, all of that. And so I think learning that at a larger firm is, is very helpful. And that's also something I was doing at Yahoo in a slightly different context. But a lot of the mechanics are the same. So if you think about the legal negotiation to actually, you know, whenever you're buying a company or, or investing in a company, so you don't have to be buying it, but you're investing in a company, there's a purchase agreement. And that's a, could be a 30 to 100 plus page legal document. It's kind of a highly specialized legal document. You pay a lot of money to lawyers <laughs> who help you produce that, but be able to read through that to be able to provide helpful feedback to know what are the business points to push on. That was a skill that I got both at Yahoo and in private equity. But I, I think there's corporate, the, the M&A function at a large corporation, it's different than private equity, the way you look at businesses, yeah. because you're part of a lar larger organization. So there, there's a lot more that has to go into purchasing the business than purely it being an investment decision. And I think there's some positives and some negatives to that, but it, that, that part of it's not necessarily transferable. No, I think that's interesting, especially the point you bring up about the finance gap in consulting. We get it from a very high level, right? But you can't really appreciate it from like a very specialized transaction point of view. And I think that's often missed. And by the way, just speaking more broadly, as it relates to some of your investments, usually the finance function is like kind of the first thing that needs a little bit of you know, TLC. And that's something that at least, you know, we see a lot with our, our clients. I think as an investor, you need to be able to sort of run the spectrum from getting really into the weeds when you need to. So getting into the details of a model or very detailed aspects of the transaction documents, but you also need to be able to step back and see the big picture 
and have a, a broader kind of big picture thesis around a company. And I think investors who are able to match the big picture with also being able to go super deep into certain areas of the deal and the investment, I think those are the best investors. I do think that some of these skills are, you may not learn in consulting how to do X, Y, Z. I think all of these skills you can, if you have the will and interest and the aptitude, I think you can teach yourself. I don't think there, there's nothing magic about financial modeling, for example. I do think it's, it's very hard to just do it yourself without getting those repetitions of being you know, an analyst at a bank or spending a couple of years at a private equity firm. But I think you can, there's a lot of stuff you can do now to self-teach your things with how much content there is on YouTube, for example, or other areas. And I think perhaps more importantly than just those hard skills, I think you can self-teach yourself in a lot of ways how to be an investor. There are thousands upon thousands of hours of content and podcasts and books and videos from other world-class investors. And I think you can always be, I, I certainly do this. I mean, I think you can always be trying to trying to teach yourself to be a better investor and you don't need to go to business school or spend 10 years at Goldman Sachs or something like that to pick that stuff up. I think that's a really good point. And on this show, we've talked about maybe a little bit about like the how, right? So I think it would be interesting to get your perspective on not necessarily how one might go from consulting to say private equity, but maybe just what would you share like as far as advice if someone thought they were interested in moving into private equity and, you know, maybe some of the things that you've found to be interesting or surprising and like why, why someone might like it. Maybe that's the question I'm trying to ask. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what private equity is. So I think most people have a surface, even, even people, and I, I was this way. I mean, when I was at McKinsey, I mean, I really didn't understand what private equity was. And I think you tend to have a surface level understanding, which comes from kind of the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And it's reading about big deals. And it gives a, for lack of a better word, it's kind of this sexy view of, of private equity and deal making. The reality is if you're in your mid-20s and you're starting at a private equity firm, whether it's a, it's a huge private equity firm or it's a small one, there's a lot of really, I would say, painful grunt work that goes into making a deal happen. And certainly at the junior levels, even at the senior levels, and that's what you're spending your time on. You're not flying around on a you know private jet making deals. We certainly don't do that now. And, and most of the private equity activity in the US is in the lower middle market, right? It's not the Burger Kings and the Toys R Us. TXUs yeah. <laughs> and these huge deals you read about or Dell. It's small companies nobody's ever heard about that are servicing your AC at your house or it's the gym you go to or the local hamburger joint, or uh, industrial automation company you've never even heard of that are owned by private equity firms. So I think going in with the right expectation of what you're doing, it's, it's highly detailed, highly analytical work. I don't think I'm answering your question though, which is, well, why would you, so no, why I think would you, you want to do that? I think what I, one of the things, a couple of things I enjoy about the job, I think one of the things I enjoy the most is we get a look at a broad spectrum of businesses. And I think for me, that's very intellectually interesting and stimulating. So unlike an operator who may be spending years or even a lifetime on a single business or in a single sector, in any given week, we might be evaluating businesses in completely different segment parts of the market. And in some cases, these are businesses I didn't even know existed. 
and I'm getting to learn about them and the dynamics. And I think that provides a really rich experience. If you're a person that gets kind of stimulated by that ex- constant exposure to new information, yeah, that's something I really enjoy. I think another aspect of what we do that I enjoy is I think measuring success is very clear. So in consulting, for example, you might be on a project and you deliver, you have a deliverable, something you have to, you know, you're doing for a client, a a strategy work, or it's helping them with cost reduction and some function. And you typically sort of deliver a report. It's kind of highly intellectual. And then you move on to the next project. And when I was in consulting, at least, we never looked back and said, okay, well, what happened with what we've done? In our world, I think it's very clear whether you're successful or not, you know, for every dollar you invest. At some point, if you're doing this well, you should be generating, you know, multiples on that dollar or there's investors who are generating less than a dollar. But it's very easy to sort of keep score. You know, are, you know ultimately, are you are you returning an acceptable you know, rate of return on that investment? And so I, I, I like that clarity in what we do and, and knowing whether what we're doing is correct or not. And then I'd say the third thing is just. I do think we tend to work with relatively small businesses Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of things that we can help those businesses with that move the business in tangible ways where you can see very specific immediate benefit. Whereas I think when you're working with much larger companies, it's harder to move the needle. I think it's even harder from the outside to do that. I like all those three things. Okay. So after you make an investment, what's kind of like the things that you worry about most, like what keeps you up at night as a lower middle market PE investor? I think it's very investment specific. So every investment has, you know, a set of risks. Mm-hmm. I think examples of things that we've worried about in the past are, you know, for example, I think we've had haven't have or have had investments where you have a for example a CEO who is is really strong and they're fundamental to the success of the business. Mm-hmm. And you worry about what happens if something, you know, if they get hit by a boss, what happens to that investment? Mm-hmm. And it can take time to develop uh, sort of redundancy in an organization, particularly if it's smaller. And so we've worried about that. I think we always worry about competition. So sometimes you're in businesses where every business is competition. It's always changing. And sometimes you worry about, you know, what happens if there's a competitor that is executing better than you or, if it's a consumer business, maybe what they're providing is resonating more with consumers and you that slowly causes deterioration in your business. I think sometimes there's other risks that you might not think of. I mean, we invested, for example, in a gym chain that had um, has most of its uh, locations in Florida. And something at least I've thought about is just, you know, what happens if there's sort of some sort of catastrophic, you know, Katrina-like storm in one of those areas, yeah. your gyms are closed for a long time. So I think there's there's like individual risks on an investment like that that you you think about. But I'd say, you know, for the most part, if your business is growing and your growth solves a lot of problems and, and certainly helps you you sleep better at night because it provides a cushion that you know, if there's hiccups, you can sort of work through those. But I think if you have a business that's really challenged with growth and then you're facing issues on top of that, like you're losing key members of the team or some other event happens, and I think it makes it much harder to, to kind of get over those. Awesome. And then just like kind of like generally speaking, just given your purview to the lower middle market, are there any kind of like maybe interesting themes that you're seeing as it relates to investing or the types of deals that are popping up just in general? There's probably a couple of big themes that just seem to be, I think, accelerating our industry. So 
there is every year, and you, you could look at the metrics, right? How much capital has been raised by private markets? And then within the private market, you can look at private equity specifically. Mm-hmm. I was just looking at something today, and you, you'll see different sources of data, but they all show the same trend. I was just looking at something today that I think the amount of total dry powder in US private equity, it's, it's something like doubled in the last, I think, six years. If you look at 2015 versus 2010, and you look at 2010 versus 2000, 2000 versus 1990, it's the same trend. There's been this exponential increase in the amount of capital. And I think what that means is that you're certainly seeing more private equity activity, so more types of companies that are being invested in into private equity. But I think the supply of capital has outpaced the supply of available companies. And I think what that's meant is that for people like us, I think it's two things. I think one is the environment every year is more competitive. Yeah. There's more people, more private equity firms, more competitors to private equity, like search funds or holding companies. And then the other is that I think what you've seen over time is that generally returns have calmed down. So all else equal, it was much easier to be a private equity investor in 1990 than it is today. Yeah. Uh, it was much easier to generate returns because there was less capital, less people doing this. So I think those are kind of some big trends we see. I think another is there's different ways to structure yourself as a private equity firm. We are what is called an independent sponsor. The way we're configured right now is we raise capital on a deal by deal basis yep. versus what's called sort of a blind pool model where you raise a dedicated pool of capital, but your investors don't know what companies that's actually going into. And I think you've seen a real trend in the last, call it five years. And I think that trend has accelerated towards our model of capital raising versus that blind pool model. And there's a lot of advantages to both investors like us, as well as LPs or limited partners, which are causing that. And I would expect that trend to, uh, you know, to accelerate. And there's some others, but I don't want to bore you by uh, talking about that. <laughs> No, no. And I think that the second one is especially exciting for folks that have particular interest in a certain sector or something like that, and then can prove success. Because then the next time they go to go raise capital for an investment, it's it's that much easier. So thanks for sharing that. Excellent. No, this has been super informative. And I guess the last thing I, I'm just kind of like curious about is like, a lot of our listeners or in consulting now, or maybe they've taken that kind of like first job out of consulting, and they want to move into private equity. Anything, I guess, like, maybe that you don't particularly like love about like, I I could rattle off like three or four things that I don't love about the executive search business, even though I, you know, on the whole love it. Anything that's like unexpected downsides of being an investor? For sure. I think there's a couple things that no job's perfect. And there's certainly elements of my job that I, I don't particularly like. Sure. I think one aspect of what we do is, and this is true for, I think, any investor, is it's a funnel with a very narrow kind of bottom mm-hmm. to the funnel. So if you think about, we might look at probably close to a thousand deals a year. And out of that funnel, we might do one or two deals. So it's inherently a business where you're saying no a lot. And that can be, you know, can be frustrating where you're putting a lot of time into diligencing and doing, trying to do an investment and it doesn't happen. And there may be lots of reasons why it doesn't happen. You know, in one case, it may be that you decide to kill an investment because you learned something or 
it's not meeting your risk profile, whatever. It may also be that these deals are competitive. It's most things we look at, if you're a good company, you have options on who you just sell to. And so we may want to buy a company. That doesn't mean that we're able to or that they want to sell to us. So that aspect of it may not appeal to some people that you're constantly sort of churning through uh, opportunities. I'd say the second piece that is can be tough is this is not a lifestyle business. So it's very competitive by its nature. Uh, there's long hours, particularly when you're working on a deal. There's a timeline that you're trying to get a deal done. And there's a ton of work that needs to happen in a short period of time. And it just doesn't lend itself to necessarily having great hours. And so that may be another aspect that people don't like. And I'd say a third is oftentimes there are aspects of an investment or even our running our own business. So for example, oftentimes we have to get into detailed tax, you know, tax issues at a company or yeah. tax issues related to a, a deal structure or even doing our own firm taxes, which I don't necessarily particularly enjoy, but that's just a part, you know, it's an aspect of what we do that, you know, someone has to do it and you have to make sure it's taken care of. So I think there's some things like that, or, or another example would be on every deal, we do insurance diligence and you have to make sure that a company has the right insurance coverages and you're covered for certain liabilities. And I don't particularly enjoy that work, but it's, it's something that just needs to get done. Yeah. And especially if you compound the first and second example, which you gave, which is a funnel based business, and then there's long hours. So it's like, inherently, you could also spend a lot of time and hours on something that unfortunately, inevitably goes nowhere. But that's kind of the nature of the beast. That's right. And I would also say another, and these aren't actually, I would say this is a highly analytical business. Yeah. So that's an aspect of it that I enjoy. But it doesn't actually lend itself to every person. So we do a lot of detailed work, a lot detailed analysis. We will get reams and reams of data from a company and process it. And we're trying to glean insights, compare it to other businesses, look for positive trends, look for negative trends. And that may not lend itself to everyone's personality. So and I think this is something you should, if you're thinking about going into investing, you should think about the type of investing you want to do. One's not better than the other. It's really a question of, I think, how you want to spend your time. What do you enjoy and what are you good at? And so on the one hand, you have what we do. I would say it's highly analytical, very detail-oriented. We spend a lot of time looking at and thinking about data and you know, in, in very structured ways. On the other end of the spectrum, you could look at something like seed stage investing in frontier technology, which is much more about high-level trends in an industry and trying to place really long-term, really early stage bets. And I think a lot of that too has, you know, it goes back to not to get too much in the weeds, but kind of what's the portfolio theory. The later stage you go, the less acceptable it is to have capital loss because your your winners are not, it's very hard to have a hundred times return deal in a private equity portfolio in a seed stage deal where you're investing a million dollar check into a company that, you know, may not have revenue for years, or doesn't even have viable technology you're looking for those kind of outsized returns and you're going to accept a lot of zeros along the way. And so you should just think about what kind of investing do you want to do? And, and there's other ways to cut it, not just stage, but you know, sector, you'd want to do public markets, private markets, and then think about the type of firm you want to be at. So there's a lot to parse through, but it's not all the same, I guess is the fundamental message. Yeah, I really like that message because it also it resonates well with like what I usually tell candidates is it's like you kind of first know yourself and like how you like to spend time and like what gives you energy, right? And 
then match that to a job as opposed to like, I did this too, especially like in consult. I always said, I want to do private equity basically because it sounded cool. Like the reality of it is like, that's probably not like how I truly enjoy spending my time. I get my energy from people, which is why I enjoy doing a podcast. But I think that's right, Ariz. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, and I would caution people too, I would not get, I mean, this goes more broadly what you do as a career, but I think generally, if you, at least if you're working on business items or sort of you're working in the business world, I think if you're you're successful, the economic kind of money aspect of it will come. And if you, you do good work, whether it's it's being a technology entrepreneur, it's being an entrepreneur in another space, it's being an executive, it's being an investment banker, it's being a consultant, it's doing private equity. If you're really good at what you do, that will show through and the money aspect of it will come eventually. And I do think a lot of people just get seduced by the idea that you make a lot of money in private equity, which isn't necessarily the case, but probably generally overcompensated. But you know, if that's your main reason for wanting to do it, I think you're not going to last. I mean, let alone probably enjoying it. But at some level, you have to enjoy the work more than just making a certain amount of money. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to put in the time and effort you're going to need to start your own private equity business or, or move up the ranks or whatever it might be. So I would just caution to not get seduced by those numbers. I think that is excellent advice. Well, good. Ariz, thanks so much for this. This has been super informative. If anybody wanted to learn, I guess, you know, more about yourself or more about NB Group, any uh, websites or any information you'd like to share? Sure. Best place is probably just our website, nbgroup.us, or you can Google it or Google my name and feel free to reach out. Always happy to talk to people that are thinking about careers or if you're interested in what we do, business opportunity or looking for something, feel free to reach out. We're responsive and generally an open book. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining us. For everybody else joining for the first time, make sure to subscribe on either Spotify, Apple, or Amazon. If you're interested in past episodes, you can always check out beyondconsulting.info. And then lastly, if you want to get in touch with anybody at my firm, it's going to be eca-partners.com. Until next time, thanks so much. Bye-bye.